Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Rebecca S., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, March 17, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are in Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, on page 35, the first paragraph beginning with What Sort of Thinking? Today's readers are as follows. Reading the OA 12 Steps is Laura W. Reading the OA 12 Traditions is Karen U. And reading the text are Larry, Esther C., and Janice M. The share ID for Sunday, March 16th, is 6052. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. And a Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Laura W. to read the OA 12 steps. Good morning, Rebecca. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. This is Laura W., Recovered Compulsive Eater and Anorexic in South Jersey. The 12 Steps of Overeaters Anonymous. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Pass. Thank you, Laura W. I will now ask Karen Yu to read the OA 12 Traditions. Good morning. Good morning. I'm a compulsive overeater. My name is Karen Yu. 
The 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issue, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public, re- our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I pass. Thank you, Karen. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book in Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, on page 35, the first paragraph beginning with What Sort of Thinking. I will now ask Larry to get us started. Good morning. Thank you, Larry, a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago. Appreciate your service. Okay, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? 
Well, you know, when we talk about, you know, in, in more about alcoholism, we are, we're still in, in you know, in, in understanding our disease a little bit more. And, um, you know, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Well, you know, I am a true compulsive reader. I have an alcoholic mind. And, um, you know, we have more than a physical allergy you know, of two. You know, my daughter has, um, has a peanut allergy. And I've, I've mentioned that before on, on the line before. And, um, you know, she's been exposed to, to, uh, to peanuts. Um, and, and when she has, when she's exposed to peanuts, uh, you know, her, her throat constricts and uh, she needs uh, treatment. And, uh, you know, she gets that treatment. She carries an EpiPen and, you know, and that um, alleviates her, her problem. You know, so she has an allergy. She has an adverse reaction when she consumes peanuts. And, you know, the thing about my daughter is, is that uh, she doesn't have the second component. She doesn't have an obsession of the mind. You know, she, you know, we, last time she was in the hospital was about a couple years ago. She was at a, uh, a theater camp. And, you know, there was ac- accidental exposure, you know. She she d- does her due diligence. Um, she's old enough where, you know, she was sure and she did the checking and so forth. But, unfortunately, this thing had peanuts in it. And she reacted as anyone would with an allergy, whatever type of allergy you have. And, you know, they use the EpiPen and, and, you know, you have to take the person to the hospital in that case. But she was fine. She was actually within, you know, within a couple, three hours, uh, um, she was able to return to the theater camp. She has one component. She has an allergy to peanuts. See, if you're like me, you have two components, um, and, and that's the why of it. You know, she said, "Look, oh, that was bad. I, I hate when I when I, when that happens. I I don't want it. I don't want this anymore. I don't want this feeling. I'm done with this feeling." See, but with us, with the second component, the obsession of the mind, eventually we pick it up again. I mean, it's it, it, that's insane. That's insanity, right? But we we pick it up again. That's part of our disease. So bottom line, you know, once we take a bite of our binge foods, when I take a bite, I have no utter ability to determine how much more I'm going to eat. It might be two. It might be 50 or 100, literally. You know, and when I, when I said I was going to stop, I meant it. I wasn't kidding. I'm never going to do this again, you know. And each time I met a, made a resolution not to pick up, and I would talk to, uh, you know, family or friends, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. This is killing me. I'm done. As insane as it may sound, I really and truly meant it. I felt that in that moment. This time it's going to be different, you know. And, um, but inevitably... You know, I, I do pick up again. I do pick up again. And this is repeated over and over and over again. This is the, this is the thinking that dominates uh, a compulsive overeater. I re- repeat that time after time, the desperate experiment. That, you know, this time it's not going to burn me. Here's how. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. And, um, you know, eventually we pick up again. You know, we never know which way it's going to go. But, you know, basically... 
you know, friends, uh, you know, it, it says in the doctor's opinion, and this is, you know, you know, that frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Push yourself away from the table. Eat half. I remember my second wife. You know, you know what I did? I, she just started to eat half of, of the portion, and she lost the weight. That's all you need to do, Larry, just eat half. You can still have the things that you enjoy. Just moderate what you're eating. You know, the, the frothy emotional appeal doesn't suffice for a guy like me. The message which finally can interest and, and hold, you know, my, holds my understanding in my mind was, had to have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So, yeah, no, no appeal could, would have mattered to me. You know, that wouldn't have kept me out of the food for two minutes. Even as much as I wanted to change, I want to change this time. I want to change, but it was not going to happen for me. The, the disease was choking me, and I was thrashing about. And, and eventually, I surrendered and I worked the steps diligently, courageously. And I had, just as they promised, I had a spiritual awakening. That was the whole purpose to have a spiritual awakening, a vital spiritual experience, a personality change. And when that happened for me, the obsession was lifted. The obsession was lifted. I am, the food is down. I don't want the food anymore. And I'm not white knuckling it. I'm not holding my breath underwater. It really is possible. I can't believe that what they promised was true is true, but it is. I don't want the food and I'm happy. I'm not restless, irritable, and discontent. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Eileen. Eileen and then Kim. Go ahead, Eileen. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. This is Eileen, compulsive eater from Bedford, Mass. I haven't been on this meeting for a little while because I just started a new job. But anyway, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? You know, I've repeated it time after time after time for 18 years more than I had to. Um, No one uh, who's, quote, a normal eater can understand. It says friends were reasoned with him after three. No one probably reasoned with me because I hid it from people. I would close the door, close the shades, and binge my brains out. But it showed in the sense of my weight and my attitude, the depression, the unhappiness, the incredible despair that I experienced, and feeling incredibly alone, like I am the only one who suffers from this disease. I didn't know it was a disease then. I didn't realize that it was a mental obsession as well as a physical allergy to sugar and flour. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? I'm not judging uh, an alcoholic or a compulsive overeater. I'm one of them. But I was very selfish. You know, all I wanted was my drug, but I had a disease. That's why. But I, you cannot know the gratitude that I have in my heart for having found this program, for having found another job 
and I'm earning the best salary that's ever been offered me, and it's all because of this program, because I'm abstinent. I can go and I can think today. I can get on a computer and do what I need to do. I work with people. I can listen to people. I'm, I'm a substance abuse counselor. That's what I do professionally. I live this program, and there's nothing better than it. Thanks for listening, and I'll pass. Thank you, Eileen. Kim? Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. This sort of what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink. So this chapter is so important to me because this is not a chapter about being in the food and not being able to get out of it. This is a chapter about people that are sober, people that are abstinent, and make that decision to pick up the food. So the allergy at this point is academic in the sense it's not being triggered. So when we're abstinent and we're three or four weeks out and we say we're craving food so much, that's not correct according to the doctor's opinion. Craving is once we ingest the food. So if we're three, four weeks out and we're abstinent, what we're feeling is the obsession of the mind. So this is a strong language, the word dominate. Dominate. So I looked that up in the dictionary. That means to rule over, to govern, to control. Man, does that describe my obsession? And desperate. Looked up that word. Reckless or dangerous because of despair or urgency. That explains my decision to pick up. There's an urgency to it. There's a despair about it. This is not about the decision to have three donuts. You're three donuts in to a dozen donuts. This is why did you pick up that first donut? Because that's the crux of my problem. What is the thinking that says this time is going to be different? You know, I remember in my early 20s after being diagnosed morbidly obese, and I just was trying to diet, and I finally just said, you know what, I can't diet anymore. Because I could only get control for short periods of time. And once I picked up that next bite, that first bite, the spring back was so intense that if I lost 20, I would gain back 30. If I lost 10, I would gain back 15. And I realized that the diet only meant to gain weight. Because I could only keep that control, that, that urgency, that desperateness, that recklessness, that, that ruling over, governing, controlling obsession of the mind was going to win out. And I remember in Overeaters Anonymous, I had six years in the beginning, white-knuckled, terrified, have to do the fellowship and fear kind of abstinence. And I was on my, my intergroup board, and I, was, I asked to be on the region board, and I didn't know how to say no. I was a good little girl. I don't know how to say no. And I didn't want to do it. And my thinking told me, wait a minute, if I pick up, I'm not qualified to be on the board. So what I can do is I can pick up and then get back on track, but that way I'm disqualified from having to run for that board position. That was the thing that dominated me, and I picked up, and I never got more than a year after that. And I was in the program for 17 years before three years ago when I got this solution, and I worked the steps instead of working the fellowship. And I've been recovered now for three years. 
But as that disease progressed after six years of white-knuckled abstinence, and that sinking dominate me and trying once again that desperate experiment of the first drink, it was six months, eight months, maybe nine months, then two weeks, then a month, then three days, then not even from breakfast to lunch. So we have to ask ourselves, the allergy of the body is a bodily mandate. What sort of thinking dominates? Because if I can help get God in between me and the thought, I can become recovered. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Did I hear someone else who wanted to share? It spoke up. Well, would anyone like to share on this paragraph? Beth, Beth B. from Massachusetts. Harita, compulsive reader. Did you say Alita? Rita, R-I-T-A. Rita. Okay, Take Beth and then Rita. Hi, uh, my name is Beth B. from Massachusetts. And uh, thank you for your service. This um, paragraph meant a lot to me. This actually, this whole chapter is is like one of my favorite chapters. Um, earlier in the chapter, it says about over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. And I've been in program 24 years, and finally have um, about nine months of back-to-back abstinence back again. But um, the obsession and me talking myself into this time will be different. I won't eat the whole box of cookies. I won't drink the whole bottle of wine. I, I'm an alcoholic as well. And my first year, I was in about uh, 13 months, lost all my weight, 100 pounds about, and put down the alcohol and um, got down to my goal and just used it as a diet. I hadn't been thin like that in ages, and I felt wonderful, and I was getting asked out on dates, and I picked up the food. Not a lot, but I picked it up. And I went on a blind date and ordered a glass of wine with this guy and only had two glasses of wine and convinced myself I wasn't an alcoholic, and I was thrilled that I convinced myself I was not an alcoholic. For over a year, I had people over and gave them diet soda, tea, water, and I decided, oh, my God, I only drank two drinks that night. I'm not an alcoholic. I'll be able to invite people over now and give them alcohol. And I went to a discount liquor store that was in my neighborhood that I hadn't been into for over a year and bought uh, tons of stuff, wine, champagne, whatever. And yes. I went home and drank yes. it. The int- yes? Wait, this is an OA meeting. Oh, I know. I mean, oh, I know. Um, I'm just trying to um, equate it to just like the food. I mean, the alcohol and the food is the same thing. Um, I realize this is OA, and I obviously have the the eating problem. Um, Would you rather I didn't talk about alcohol? Well, right. (laughs) Um, But anyway, um, it's the same with the food. I look at, I eat one thing. I've been absent for a while. Um, I did the same thing as the previous girl, Kim, I think, you know, I'd gain, I'd, I'd lose 50, gain 60. And I just kept going back and forth, back and forth. And as I said earlier, I'm finally sober and abstinent. And thank God I finally got God in my life and did the first three steps. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Beth. And I am sorry for interrupting. I hope you understand. Rita? 
Yes, thank you. Thank you for your service, Rebecca. Um, I've lost my place. What page are we on, please? We are on page 35, and we've read the first paragraph. Did you want okay. to share, or were you just asking for... No, I'm just asking. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll pass. You're welcome. Thank you, Rita. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? Lori from Connecticut, compulsive overeater. Leah. Okay, Lori and then Leah. Go ahead, Lori. Hello, my name's Lori, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? You know, for me, with the food, um, not only the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body is there, and I understand that. But once that obsession hits me, it, it's, that becomes the problem, and that's where steps one, two, and three have to They must come to me, and I must pray before I binge. You know, I'm recently coming back to OA, um, and I'm struggling with the food. I'll have five days abstinence, and then I, you know, I have a binge. And then I'll have, you know, seven days abstinence, and then I have a binge. You know, um, so what I'm doing now is I'm turning to steps one, two, and three and turning to God and asking my higher power before and calling my food sponsor when I want to binge. And God bless her, she's usually there and picks up, you know, um, and we talk it through, and I don't binge. And that's the beauty of this program, thank God. You know, um, but if the food sponsor's not there, I have other, you know, I have the network. I have other people I can call um, and talk the food, the binge through before I pick up. You know, and and this guy in this paragraph, you know, friends who had reasoned with him after a spree which had brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, I mean, those were, that's huge, are mystified. These friends are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? And that's the obsession of the mind. You know, what is what was this guy thinking? You know, he still, he got, you know, he went to, to the, the extreme of divorce and bankruptcy and what was he thinking when he walked into the saloon for, you know, another spree of drinking? You know, and it's the same thing for the food with me. You know, what am I thinking when I'm ready to go and binge? You know, and that's the obsession. And that's where prayer and my higher power, God, who I choose to call God, has to come in and I pass. Thank you, Lori. Leah? Thanks so much, Rebecca. Good morning, everybody. My name's and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Again, we're studying Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, which is focusing in on the greater aspect of my disease, which is the obsession of the mind. I mean, it's academic that I have an allergy of the body. That's true. But lots of people have allergies. <laughs> they don't need to go to Peanuts Anonymous or Tuna Anonymous and talk about not eating peanuts or tuna um, due to allergic reactions. Um, I have a mind that keeps taking me back to that which is killing me. So what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? And again, dominating meaning what kind of thinking governs me, controls me, uh, 
has authority and power over me. That is the crux of the problem. That is the issue for someone like me. Because whatever I direct my life towards, that's what's going to run my life. Because my life is based on the ideas I produce in my mind. Um, the big book here in Chapter 3 is going to be um, devoted to the insanity that is part of my illness. You know, when the big book talks about insanity, and of course we get that terminology from step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. If I need to re be restored to sanity, then obviously the text is implying that I'm insane. Uh, and the big book is not talking about the kind of insanity that occurs uh, to me after I'm a few bites in. The insanity that the big book is referring to is the insanity that takes control of me before I pick up that first bite. The insanity that makes me take that first bite. I have this peculiar, strange, mental twist called the obsession of the mind. And the big problem with an obsession is that it keeps me from seeing the truth about myself, that I have this allergy. So instead of seeing things the way they are, instead of seeing the truth, I believe a lie. And worse than that, of course, because it's dominating me, I take action on that lie. So I have a defective mind. My mind is inherently flawed, and it's suffering from this obsession. So what happens for someone like me, a real compulsive overeater, is one idea enters my consciousness and dominates it, controls it in such a way that all other ideas are shoved aside, and I become possessed by it, and this obsession becomes my only reality. So this is why someone like me doesn't respond to humiliation, even though <laughs> there's been hundreds of times, hundreds of experiments that... Uh, Taking a first bite is going to lead me into, into a binge. I don't learn from the consequences of my behavior. I've stopped thousands of times. Why can't I stay stopped when it comes to this? I forget to remember. I do not connect the dots, and that is the crux of my problem. And if God was enough at this point then I wouldn't need the rest of the steps, <laughs> right? All I would have to do is pray. All I would need is step one and two and perhaps a little bit of three. But the reality is that I need a transformation from a self-centered existence to a God-centered existence. Prayer can't do that alone. Thinking can't do that alone. Wishing can't do that alone. Self-knowledge can't do that. Any intellect regarding this text can't do that. I need to apply, actually take the action of the steps, specifically steps four through nine, which will allow the obsession of the mind to be driven out. I'm not restored to sanity until I have implemented steps four through nine, and the obsession of the mind is actually driven out. The problem has been solved. Practicing the remaining 11 steps means the adoption and, of attitudes and actions that no compulsive overeating who are, who, overeater who is still compulsive overeating can dream of taking. I had to admit with 100% uh, powerlessness that I need the rest of the steps. 
Otherwise, I was going to continue to be dominated, controlled by the obsession of the mind. So what this program of recovery allows for me is an opportunity to find a way to live where my mind doesn't lock on, doesn't get dominated by that sense of ease and comfort that's going to come at once by eating that first bite. And that process is called recovery. And that's what this is about, implementing the steps to be recovered. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. This is Rebecca, Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and I'd like to share on this paragraph as well. You know, I've really appreciated what everyone said, and it's brought me to, um, with God's help, to think about my own situation and my own thinking of what was I thinking. You know, maybe I wasn't at the point of divorce or bankruptcy, but fill in the blanks. For me, I my cholesterol was getting too high. My sugar levels were getting too high. I had trouble um, moving about freely and comfortably in my own body, you know, with physical pain. And I was miserable with the way I looked, and I had trouble putting clothes on and trying to conceal how fat I was, and um, most of all, my thinking was dominated by food. I really was not available to myself or my job or um, my family or other people or to live a constructive life because food dominated my thinking, and it was always about how much could I have and when could I get it and how could I get away with it. And it literally was an obsession of the mind. It ran my life. I was also totally into the allergy because I kept triggering it because I didn't know what my twofold illness was. But even once I came into these rooms and was taught about the twofold illness, that I had an allergy and I had to put the food down. The obsession was so strong that I couldn't put it down at first. You know, it took um, a while for it to sink in to the point where I could get in touch with how this obsession was dominating my mind and this disease was killing me and that the solution was simply written in this big book and being offered to me freely by those who had already recovered. And all I had to do was do what they did. And I could have what they have. And that's how it works. And that's why we are here on the line to help those of you who haven't come to this realization with the help of God to see that those of us who have, have recovered, and that you can have this too. And we will read on with examples of what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic or a compulsive overeater like me until we um, replace that with God-centered thinking and become free of the obsession and don't need to eat our binge foods anymore and don't want to eat our binge foods anymore. 
and discover that it's an easier, happier, more joyous way of living. Uh, And with that, I'll pass. Why don't we move on to the next paragraph with Esther C. Good morning. My name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Canada. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. So we're about to read Jim's story. In this chapter, the authors really want us to identify in to establish the fact that when it comes to, for us, when it comes to food or compulsive overeating, we're insane. I'm insane. I could be normal in every respect, like Jim. I had a lot going for me. I was quite capable, of course, aside from killing myself with the food. Um, But when it came to the food, my thinking wasn't normal. My thinking is insane. And that's what separates me from regular eaters or or the other non-compulsive overeaters out there. And this insanity that we're about to read about in uh, Jim's story, this insanity, this mental obsession, doesn't settle in when I'm in the food or I'm binging. This insane thinking appears when I'm sober, when I'm abstinent. So if you've come into OA and you got abstinent, maybe lost a little bit of weight, feeling good, it pays to listen closely to Jim's story. He also, you know, we're going to read that he's uh, you know, come to AA and done some of the steps, right? But if, a, a, if you're a real alcoholic, if you're a real compulsive overeater, and I don't do all the steps or do them as they're taught in these pages and experience that psychic change, that insane thinking is going to overtake me as well. That was my experience. When I came to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, I was comfortably abstinent for a few years, and then the abstinence didn't feel as comfortable anymore, but I was still abstinent. And one day, you know, I'm looking at a bag of chips and saying to myself, hey, I eat potatoes, that's on my food plan, and and oil's on my food plan, and salt is on my food plan. Why can't I have what's in this bag? And I proceeded to not just eat one portion of that bag, but that entire bag, and then another whole big one as well. And I was off to the races, um, and that began a relapse for me. So this is exactly uh, (laughs) the type of insane thinking that could dominate a person who is a real compulsive overeater, who hasn't done their step work, who hasn't changed the way they thought. And today, of course, things are different. I actually... uh, received a food basket yesterday, and inside was a food I'd never seen before. So I pick it up, and I read the ingredients, and it's made out of all these holy, special, organic things like quinoa and brown rice and, you know, and radish seed, chia seeds, all these great, you know, uh, angelic type of foods. But my thinking has been restored. I've done all the steps. I've been restored to sanity. I've recovered. So my mind said to me, yeah, Esther, but you don't eat chips. And then I just proceeded to give it to somebody else, and that was that. And so let's read on with Jim and see what his thinking is is like before recovery, before he's done the step when he's merely sober. 
And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Would anyone like to share on this paragraph? Sally, in Colorado. Okay, I, there were a number of people. I heard Sally, and I believe I heard Sharon in Colorado, and there was a man's voice. Larry. That Larry. And who else was trying to get in there? Anna. I think I heard Anna and Lauren S. Yes. Okay. Okay, Sally, go ahead. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for your service. Good morning, Abigail, for you. It's Sally, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in South Jersey. So we're looking at, they're telling us it's our first example, and of course we know that um, there's been Roland Hazard, there's been Bill, there's been the man who retired after um, holding his breath for many, many years and finally retiring. And um, now we're looking at this gentleman, Jim, And the interesting thing about Jim to me is that this man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. So this guy who's about to lose this lucrative automobile agency didn't just lose his his business um, and then have to go and work for his um, new boss which we're going to see as the story unfolds. But we see here this key word, inherited. This is his inheritance. This is a family business that was handed to him. And so we can see the emotional, the component, the added emotional component that his dad or uncle or whoever it was who handed him this business entrusted him with the family business. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's sort of like Roland Hazard. He's a high-functioning guy because, as they're going to tell us, he's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. Maybe he's got general anxiety disorder. Maybe he's been, maybe he's been an alcoholic for a lot of years and just uh, didn't realize it. Maybe he did realize it, but that's what they're telling us, that he did no drinking until he was 35 years old. That's very interesting to me, that he did no drinking until he was 35 years old. I, I kind of have a hard time relating to that because I'm more like the frog, the fat frog in the frying pan that's only on, you know, the slow burner and slow burning since age nine all the way through my life and just laying in the water burning through my life. And the reason why I think this is important here, this guy did no drinking till he was 35 and in a few years he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed and on leaving the asylum he came into contact with us. So this guy has had a rude awakening that he is an alcoholic. And when you look at the top of the page, and they've got that little sentence stuck in there, this is the crux of the problem. The mental state, some places call it the mental twist, the mental blind spot. They've got the mental phenomena, but it is the crux of the problem. I know it for myself because I had five years of of white-knuckling back-to-back abstinence, and still, after five years, one day, picked up that piece of pizza. 
which was a starting gun for a 100-pound weight gain. But here's this guy at 35 years old who's never had a drink, no drinking, and suddenly he picks up and he has this violent intoxication experience. And I just have to say that um, for myself, I just think it's a marvelous thing that uh, we can, you know, I, I think that part of this mental twist, mental crux of the problem is we see people who are eating an ice cream cone with impunity. They're standing in public. They're not sneaking to eat this. They're standing in public with their families having an ice cream cone, and they're eating it with impunity. In a lot of cases, they're not, they're not even going to gain weight over that ice cream cone, but not me because I'm not like them. And this man, Jim, is also not like the guy who can just have one and stop. Obviously, he just started 35 years old, and now he's violently intoxicated. So he's got this thing that we've got, and that's all I've got. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Sally. Aaron. Thank you, and welcome to everyone out on the line. Um, these examples and these stories just uh, speak volumes to me. Uh, but uh, again, it starts with that thinking. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time that desperate experiment of the first drink? And that has been my experience with uh, the food uh, addiction. And uh, when I started listening to this meeting we, uh, two years ago, we were in the doctor's opinion. And I began to see uh, God just shining a huge flashlight into my mind about the, uh, the mental twist regarding this food addiction. And the mental twist is something that started with me very early on in my life. I mean, I, I was uh, very imaginative, had a very fearful imagination, but you know, lived this lie that I was a risk taker and I was this and I was that. So I, I was always living a lie. And um, what I see now is that um, mental twist, I, I call it it's my broken thinker because my thinker is still broken. And it's the process of these steps, especially four through nine, to clean out the the debris, and then let God, I can't do it. You know, it says I can no longer, uh, I can no more master these resentments and this uh, uh, insane thinking than I can master alcohol or, or picking up that first bite. So what do I need to do? And then it lays it out in the steps, four through nine, what I must do to keep that mind clear and being renewed and transformed, and that continues on. Uh, day in and day out, and uh, that's what protects me as God continues to heal that mind that I don't go back and take that first bite and then start that crazy cycle of addiction and a vicious cycle uh, over and over again. And I do have a nervous disposition, um, and I grew up in a family where mental illness was part of was part of the life I grew up in. And so I did have a, a very skewed uh, fear of anything that, had to, that said insane or mental illness or anything like that. 
But I am just so grateful today to know that I have been set free and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And I now must, must live in steps 10, 11, and 12 every single day because I still can be restless, irritable, and discontent. But I see it for what it is. I don't pretend it's not there. I don't pretend that that didn't bother me. That's no big deal because that's the way I used to think. And I cannot afford to do that now. I must immediately take care of that issue. And through the process of the steps, that's what gives me that freedom to have that connection with God that protects me from picking up that first bite that will send me down that dark road again of food addiction. And so I'm just so grateful to um, to see that today, to be living in a recovered state today, and to know that it's possible for anyone out there on the line because I struggled for years. I, too, I can really relate to Kim, you know. Dieting with group support, uh, that's what I came in originally. I mean, I was obsessed with food, weight, and dieting from my adolescent years. I was obsessed with that. And I wasn't even overweight. So, you know, that that skewed thinking started early on with me. And so I'm just so grateful to be here today. I'm so grateful to be a part of this Vision for You phone line meeting. And I just um, thank you for the opportunity to share. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sharon. Larry? Yeah, quickly, uh, Larry, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. I had to share about this one because... Um, Jen, boy, that that was me. Um, You know, I had a charming wife. Uh, My daughter was born. Didn't have a lucrative automobile agency. I don't know if that would have been good for me. Um, uh, Certainly bought a lot of new cars when I had no money. But anyway, um, uh, you know, everybody likes him. I I don't know that that was the case. No, I know that wasn't the case. (laughs) Okay, but but um there was a charm you know there was uh you know a feeling like uh, i was leading a, a uh you know i wore a mask you know i had this this uh, dark dirty secret you know and um and 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 that was i think the case for for a lot of people i mean my goodness you know the danger for a guy like me you know is rather than identify in i chose to identify out I mean, how, you know, I had this internal debate most days, most days for years. How could a guy like me, you know, how could a guy like me have, you know, be, have this disease? But this disease, I'll remind you that, you know, remind myself that this disease is no respecter of, um, you know, of, of socioeconomic status, no respecter of culture, gender, it crosses all lines in society worldwide. You know, I had this thing, but I wasn't willing to necessarily accept it. And and maybe I, I started eating way before 35. You know, I knew I had a problem. But let me tell you, I became very intoxicated, and I was a Jekyll and, a, Jekyll and Hyde. So one moment I might be up in front, you know, teaching in front of 100 or more students. You know, that was my reality. You know, and, and, and the next moment I could be back home kicking the dog. You know, that was the man that I was. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm not that guy anymore because I had a spiritual awakening as, a, as the result of working these steps. And I quit trying to fool myself into thinking maybe, just maybe I'm not. And I would, I would you know, what we seek we find. And I would look for evidence to suggest that I wasn't. 
well, my life's not, you know, too bad. You know what? Maybe I, maybe I'm not like the rest of you. I am indeed. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. Anna. Or Anna. Yes, um, Hannah recovered. Oh, Hannah, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Go ahead. That's okay. That's okay. I I recovered compulsive eater in Colorado. Oh boy, this really touches home for me. Um, you know the mental. Um, I I I really. What I really hear in this paragraph is that. It really doesn't matter what my life looks like on the outside. <laughs> that does not mean that I am a, a healthy person acting in life-giving ways in the world. And and that really, and that's, I mean, my family looked great. And my parents were both violent alcoholics. Um, I got to OA I had been free of other substances in another 12-step program for 12 years, I think, 12 or 13 years. And that was really when my eating disorder started to emerge, emerged, I should say. Um, You know, I can see things looking back now, but it was really never an issue for me. Um, I look, I was, it just wasn't an issue. And... What started to emerge at that point, I went back to school and more emotions started to emerge and and I just got fixed on, you know, this is the food, this food that my boss serves at work at his meetings, this is the thing that will make my day okay and and got in trouble for it. and there was no reason, I mean, I could go buy one of those foods for myself. Um, so the mental attitude is is really, in my experience, it, that's really the key. I, I, and what I find now, after 10 years of abstinence, is that there are times when my think, that thinking is still right there. I... I my doctor just told me, recommended a test for it would, would require me to fast for a day. And I said to her, I don't think I can do that. And my mind says, I can't possibly not eat for a day. I just can't. And what I know from my experience is that the God of my understanding will do this for me will make it possible for me to take this life-giving step that I know I can't do on my own. And that that intertwining, that the obsession can be there but not dominate me is, is really, and it's not by trying to figure it out, as, as we'll see that, that Jim does, as we know that we've done, it's the surrender. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Hannah. Lauren S. Okay. You're next, and I'm going to ask if you don't mind if you could keep it on the short side because okay. we're running over. Thank you. 
absolutely forming us a recovered compulsive overeater from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Jim, 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 a little AA information. His, I was told this guy's name is Ralph Furlong, and his story is in the first edition called Another Prodigal, Prodigal Story on page 357 in the first edition. And Jim and Fred and the man of sobriety for 25 years, these all present to me, Lauren Saggio, a picture of whether it's a good day, you're successful, you you you've been drinking a long time, you've been only drinking for, for a couple years. We are all alike in that before we are spiritually recovered, we are insane, which doesn't mean that we're crazy and um morally sinful. It just means we don't know the truth about our our situation. And Jim's insanity was he he believed a lie. His lie was that he could control and enjoy his drinking. Fred's lie was he could control and enjoy his thinking. My lie, I told myself, was I could control and enjoy my binge eating before I stopped compulsively overeating uh, when that date was, you know. So, okay. So, thank you very much for letting me share, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Lauren. Well, I now invite everyone who cares to. Oh, no, I beg your pardon, I jumped ahead. Thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Janice M. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Sure, Rebecca, thank you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Pass.